you know, there's something in the slow accrual of non-events that's not only realistic, somewhat profound about how time works and how time within families work. Mm-hmm. Boredom is part of unequivocally loving somebody. listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how's it going? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm not <laughs> concussed, so I might be slightly better than you. Yeah. Listener warning, this is coming from a, a brain that had a concussion a few weeks ago. So if I mess up some names, please cut me some slack. Yeah. If you fall asleep halfway <laughs> through our recording... It's not an error. I was meaning to ask, who who are you guys? <laughs> it's a good thing I lead with, I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that introduction was very helpful. Then I knew where it was. No, no I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm back to work and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the brain is working. It's just, uh, just a lot of headaches. So, um, oh. but you know, power through those and uh, try not to watch too many movies with strobe lights, which thankfully we didn't pick. So <laughs> my hero. <laughs> How are you though? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, enjoying the last gasp of like break before classes start again in a couple weeks. So, Oh, you haven't started. Oh, when do you start back in like late January? Or? Technically, it's a week from Wednesday, but I actually only teach on Tuesdays next semester. So oh, nice. I have another like five days, six days, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And uh, a kick-ass syllabi ready to go. You know, I really wish I were that kind of teacher where I do the syllabus like responsibly over the break, oh, but yeah. actually it's so last minute and I, I just haven't, but I'm, I'm teaching something I've taught before, okay. a class on love and masochism. So Ooh, nice. I just have to revise the syllabus and that sounds like a very Veronica class. Indeed. Well, and it's also nice to know you're the kind of uh, professor that doesn't just repeat the syllabus from the year before because you've taught it before or whatever. So it's absolutely mostly that. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I, was, <laughs> I was trying to help you out. I know. Don't bother. The class is over enrolled. I don't need any help. <laughs> okay. All right. That doesn't surprise me either. Oh, thanks. Thanks, bud. So life's good. Life is good. All right. It's a great time, I think, to talk about best of 2022 now that everyone's been talking about it for about three months. We always like to be the very last ones on that train, just so we can uh, miss all of the discourse and offer very different takes or the same take people have been having since like Toronto Film Festival. I know. How do you (laughs) feel about like, because it's still open submissions for the best of issue, a lot of stuff gets represented, but a lot of stuff doesn't. How do you Mm -hmm. feel about that? I mean, it took way longer than it should have, like three or four years to realize like we should not run the best of in December because that means the essays would have to be written in November. Mm. And we don't have, you know, too many people that are out there seeing the stuff unless they've been to a film festival. So we are our best of for the first few years. We're just like, what? These movies were even out that year? What are these? So moving into January was a good idea. But then actually, I've learned to love not having to do anything in December, like every other site in the world where they're just putting out all the, I mean, there's just so many top 10 lists, like as a reader. um, For sure. I love those kinds of things. I just get completely overwhelmed after about two or three of them. Um, Yeah. You know, especially if they're like all of our critics top 50s. I was like, yeah, I can't keep up. So I I find a few people that I uh, know and trust, like uh, our guest today, and I, I read their lists. But for the most part, I stay away and then just kind of come at it fresh for January for our issue. Um, the movie we're doing today, we did not accept any pieces on it, not because of this, but it was actually the one that by far and away was the most submitted. We had five times the amount of submissions on it as any other film. So oh, wow. when it came up as an option for the podcast after that, uh, it was it was kind of a no brainer to say, well, this seems to be very much still in the ether. Um, and it's something that is just a fascinating film to talk through. So I think, yeah, I think we got a good one. I'm excited to talk about this one today. Tell us what it is. The movie's called After Sun by Charlotte Wells. Probably if anyone's listening to a podcast like this, they're probably pretty aware of that film. Mm-hmm. I hadn't actually seen it until last week. So mm-hmm. gave me a good excuse to spend the extra $15 to buy it online instead of <laughs> renting it. <laughs> but yeah, good purchase. 
I've already watched it a couple of times and uh, oh, it's, nice. it's definitely near the top of my list uh, very quickly. So really enjoyed it. I was sort of questioning whether I needed, needed, I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers, needed to yeah, I was doing see it <laughs> again <laughs> because I just watched it in September, but I saw so much actually in this most recent viewing and I'm super excited to yeah. get all the way into it with our guest today. Cool. Would you like to introduce the guest? I'd love to introduce our guest, Chad. All right. All right. Our guest today is Torontonian film critic Adam Naiman. Adam is the author of books on David Fincher, Ben Wheatley, Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers, and the book-length study that first brought his critical eye to my attention, It Doesn't Suck, colon, Showgirls. He's a lecturer and critic with writing in The Ringer, Cinemascope, Film Comment, The New Yorker, N Plus One, and The New York Times. In his interview with director Charlotte Wells, which was published in Sight and Sound, Adam describes After Sun as quote, a decidedly lowercase movie with a few scenes unfolding in carefully applied italics and punctuated finally by a series of question marks. So here to delve deeper into the grammar of one of our favorite 2022 releases, welcome Adam Naiman. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a, it's a, it's a delight. While you were reading my CV, I was tuning out and thinking, <laughs> is it more masochistic to put the, the syllabus together on time, Veronica, because it's hard? <laughs> Or is it more masochistic to not put it together as an illustration to the class, the consequences of that kind of slacking? That is such a great question, and I've never considered it. And I think it's more masochistic to procrastinate. And it's a masochism I'm completely committed to in my life. Because <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching this term. I don't know where you get off not starting till like the end of January. I've got two. <laughs> I know. Two classes underway at two different universities in Toronto, and they really watch us carefully to make sure that the syllabi are submitted. But then, of course, there's no way for them to know that that's what I'm actually teaching. <laughs> Right. So I think it's a great trick to just get submit it nice and early and then teach what teach what you want anyway. Mm -hmm. My little pro tip that I hope none of my bosses are listening to. <laughs> Adam, it's so great to have you on the pod. And I think the last time that I saw you in real life was when we first met maybe 10 years ago at karaoke in Toronto. Yeah, that's at Toronto's uh, first rate karaoke facility, Bar Plus, yes. <laughs> where I have not gone since COVID, but I'm planning on going in a couple of weeks. Oh, oh. The possibility, uh, maybe not too intentionally, but a decent possibility of After Sun adjacent karaoke. There's a great After Sun karaoke scene yes. and uh, a pretty good soundtrack of mid 90s pop hits. But yeah, we had a great time doing karaoke. It's like a pretty okay film critic social ritual. I, yes. I, I, oh, it was a bunch of film critics? Yeah. It was. It was. Oh, nice. I don't know what it is about karaoke that, that seems to attract people in this profession because no one's particularly <laughs> great at it. <laughs> but you can be like pretty okay. And uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to going. So, But it is nice to see you again for sure. Although because of social media, do people really ever go away? I know what everybody's doing. It's true. Yeah. I know what they're teaching and how you're <laughs> feeling and, and all that. But here in uh, here in Toronto, you know, After Sun is a movie that's kind of very much the movie of the moment here. I don't know if you guys saw this mm. in your research, but the Toronto Film Critics Association kind of gave it a bit of a sweep. Yes. I did, yeah. And while I won't go too far into like how the voting worked or how the sausage was made or whatever, <laughs> the fact that it would win in a series of categories pitted against like the essence of a local hero's movie, like uh, Sarah Polly's women talking. Oh yeah. Pretty, yeah. It's pretty fascinating in terms of there being a real groundswell of passionate support for it. Because I think in the abstract, if you have a director like Polly or Cronenberg who has like major local love, you'd think that, you know, the TFCA might be a little bit hometown cheerleading, but the the opposite turned out, turned out to be true. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah. yeah, that's a great perspective that I hadn't considered at all. Let's give a little synopsis and then get right in because I know that you've you've written about the film and you've uh, interviewed Wells and I just I'm so excited to hear about what first struck you and um what's been reverberating ever since. So I'm just going to read a synopsis and then we'll get into it. In After Sun, director Charlotte Wells tells a story about an 11-year-old girl called Sophie, played by Frankie Corio, on holiday in Turkey with her young father Callum, played by Paul Meskel. That Wells herself was once a daughter on vacation in Turkey with a father in his early 30s is a context that's understandably intrigued the film's growing audience. Clarified, however, obliquely by Wells's October 2022 viewing note for A24. There, she writes, this film is unmistakably fiction, but within it is a truth that is mine, a love that is mine. After Sun, as it turns languid and tense, 
playful and ominous, borderline didactic, and yet opaque. As a vacation film, it studies what happens when nothing much appears to be happening and there finds something formative. So, Adam, I'd love to hear a little bit about your first viewing of the film and what's kind of been sticking with you. I had had a couple of friends message me from Cannes in like well-meaning and ultimately very perceptive ways, right? And they said, you know, there's a couple of moments in this movie that are just going to kill you, basically. Mm. It comes from a well-meaning place, but also a place that, you know, you you don't want to... <laughs> I don't think people should ever pretend special knowledge of subject matter. And in this case, you know, you never want to play the, well, you know, as someone with a daughter card, right? I mean, who cares? I don't think that <laughs> being a parent makes you an ideal viewer any more than being a child makes you an ideal viewer, right? Mm. But there are certain movies that, you know, maybe beyond their objective qualities, they do tick certain subjective boxes for people. So I had one friend, a really good film critic from New York named Mark Ash, sort of DM'd me and was like, there's a karaoke scene to R.E.M. in this song involving a little girl and her and her, and her dad. Like, you know, just be prepared, right? Mm. You know, I, I took those things in the spirit that they're intended, which is friendly and affectionate and really don't have much to do with the movie. They have to do with the fact that friends are thinking about me, which is nice. Mm. But, you know, watching the film, uh, I realized not only were they right, but I was grateful that they hadn't spoiled more of what the movie is or what the movie is around those parts because I did find it devastating and maybe wasn't prepared for how incredibly nostalgic it would make me feel for a certain period of music. Mm. I mean, I never traveled to Turkey in the 90s with my dad and I'm much older <laughs> than this character would have been. So it's not about seeing yourself in the film. Mm -hmm. But there was something about that sense of time on vacation being somewhere that's not home, mm -hmm. where everything you do has this sense of occasion to it because that's just how you have to structure your time. Mm -hmm. So things like, let's leave the hotel room. Like, well, that's an activity. <laughs> Get on the elevator. Yeah. Get on the elevator. You know, <laughs> you know, lie around and meet up for dinner. You, you put it well in your introduction, but, you know, there's something in the slow accrual of non-events mm -hmm. that's not only realistic, somewhat profound about how time works and about how time within families work because mm -hmm. boredom is part of unequivocally loving somebody, but also the way that this sense of dread was encoded into it. Yeah. And I'm very leery of movies that encode dread because it's the easiest thing in the world to hold a sword over characters and nudge the audience and be like, mm -hmm. something bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I never felt like that's quite what Charlotte Wells was doing. She's not holding a sword over the audience. I think she's just staring really, really hard in her own rearview mirror and wondering what she saw and what she didn't, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What did she see of her father when she was that age? What was hidden from her? What does she have to imagine and what can she speculate? And I found that uh, that position, not someone trying to like scare an audience or unnerve an audience or really kind of pummel you with dread, mm -hmm. but more like that sense of regret and curiosity and confusion and trying to coalesce these fragments of memory. I found it incredibly moving mm -hmm. because it's a process we're all engaged in yeah. all the time. All the time. Right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, suffice it to say, I was just held totally enthralled by this movie and by this filmmaker's choices. And, uh, you know, I don't like tone up emotional responses to movies or rank how much a movie, you know, breaks me or whatever. But I will say that the press screening at TIFF was one of those times where I really had to feel like private about my response to it afterwards. I mean, I have no problem mm. showing that you're emotional when you watch something, but it felt very private and I really kind of just wanted to get out of there because it was a lot it, it was it was it was a lot it was a lot <laughs> yeah Chad I know you had a similar response in terms of feeling a sort of edge of devastation in your viewing yeah I mean I I just really briefly wrote a little letterbox thing um, but I used that that same line um, that it just really broke me <laughs> slowly into into a million pieces for a lot of the reasons Adam is getting at there I, I also somehow managed to stay out of finding out really anything about it, except for I knew that it was about a father and a daughter. Mm -hmm. And that was enough for me, as I've uh, let you guys know. My daughter turned 16 last week, and I was like, I can't, I can't watch it this week. It's, it's too, it's going to be, whatever it is, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be too much. I just can't, I can't take that on right now. Mm -hmm. Plus, you know, being concussed. <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to talk about it even now, even a few days later, just in ways that I almost can't articulate, which is, I know, wonderful for a podcast. But <laughs> it, it really... Uh, I'm right at that kind of nexus of people that were born 
between 1975 and 1980 with the uh, analog childhood and the digital rest of your lives um, were really strange creatures that remember an archaic time, but it wasn't that long ago. Mm. I was obsessed, was obsessed with our, our family's video camera uh, when we got it in like 1986. So from like 86 to 96 is all recorded, sometimes by me, but a lot of times by my parents and all that. So I, I went online and this is not relevant, but everyone should know that VCRs are now completely obsolete. They don't make new ones in five years and they cost like $500 to try and find one to buy. So bought a VCR because um, my parents said, hey, you do want all these old home movies. So I was watching those, not knowing it was going to be in this movie. And just the nostalgia and uh, it's like a sad nostalgia. It's like, a, oh my God, this is so cool. And then really quickly, like, oh my God, we all used to be so young. And oh my God, this was the day that I didn't know that all this other stuff was going on. And, mm. Or this was a week before my life was going to change, you know. So mm. I think a lot of people have attempted to use home videos in interesting ways, but never in a way that to me was anything like this. So when that when that started happening, I mean, I think about 10 minutes in was when I realized like, okay, th this film is going to do it. It was actually the scene when he smoked a cigarette. Mm. It was about eight, nine minutes in. And I was like, oh, they're showing the entire cigarette smoked. Also with the daughter, you know, asleep in the room. And I've mm. you know, been that parent outside the hotel room when the kids are asleep. And it's just this really interesting feeling of like, wow. But you can also tell something's going on with the guy. Mm -hmm. But you can't really quite tell what it is. And mm -hmm. it's just complete silence for all the music and everything else in this film. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, so this film's only like 90 minutes. But it's going to really take its time with all these scenes and let them mm -hmm. play out past kind of a natural end point, which I'm always a, a huge kind of sucker for. Because mm -hmm. it just starts feeling really real. And then I was like, oh, no, this is going to feel really real and be a father-daughter story <laughs> and be sad. I really did consider turning it off and saying like, I don't know if I can take this on right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm so glad I did because I, I do love to be broken in, in those kind of ways. So, and at the end, you know, for all the brokenness we're talking about, there is, uh, you know, the magic trick of cinema and there's a feeling of beauty and a feeling of grace to the way she ends it, even though you get the sense probably it's going to have a tragic uh, end point past where the movie cuts off. So it was a hard, hard watch, but a beautiful watch. When you mentioned the cigarette, Right. Mm -hmm. There's this motif in the movie. And again, the film is so realistically observed that calling it a motif is almost too rarefied, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. filmmaking that introduces things like motifs and recurring patterns, and that's the filmmaker's prerogative. This isn't as grand as all that. But there is this recurring motif of these little increments of distance that he's able to put between them because of appropriateness, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you have, they get into the room, there's one bed, there's absolutely no like awkward incestuous humor played for, but it's like something that he, it gives him pause. It's like mm. not appropriate for us to do this. She needs her own space. Mm -hmm. There's also just, you know, the practical reality of they both need to go to bed, <laughs> you know, giving her the mattress, smoking the cigarette outside. It's enough distance to feel like he's doing his job and his due diligence, but he can't really keep it from her because the nature of the trip is so intimate. Mm -hmm. yeah. so there's all these scenes in the film that are about sharing space, carving out space. And as it goes along, when we start seeing him in his own space, he is taking no relief from it mm -hmm. or pleasure from it. There's no break. When he's in his own space, he's just either completely emptied out or hollowed out. Or you have that scene at the end which even thinking about it is hard to think about where you just sort of have him sitting crying in that unmotivated way. God, yeah. And what's so moving about that scene, and almost tears in my eyes thinking about it, is you can tell based on the blocking and staging of that scene, he's gotten away from her. Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah. And th that's such a double-edged sword because there's a version, maybe not a version of this movie and not a version of Charlotte Wells's life. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure type movie, but it is a movie where you wonder, well, what if he showed her more? Mm. You know, is it more unfair to show her nothing so she doesn't know what's going to be lowered over her father? Or is it more unfair to subject a 13-year-old to that, I think maybe someone might say if the end result is going to be what the movie seems to hint the end result is, he should have showed her more. He should have showed it to somebody. Mm. But that little thing like smoking the cigarette outside or saying, I just need a minute to lie down, how you find space for yourself when you're with other people. But it's not the space of relief when you have kids. It's just like, I can't let her see me like this. No, yeah. I can't think of movies that have found a way to communicate that. Exactly. It's yeah. a real feeling as a parent, even if you're not a depressed parent. Oh my God, yeah. It's just a feeling of fatigue, right? I laughed out loud. It's such a funny scene when she's lying on the bed in the hotel and he's like, how are you? Yeah. He's like, I'm just so tired. <laughs> like when your bones are tired. I feel it tired. in my bones. Yeah. You know when your bones are tired? It's just. But also how quickly he tries to move her off of that. Yeah, that was also a sense. I don't know if you got that, Adam, but of totally 
he was thinking, oh, God, what if she's got what I've got inside of her? Mm. Yeah. That's just, yeah. I mean, again, all, all the all the broken heart moments in that. And, and I should say, or I should, I should ask, I, mean, I wonder what Veronica thinks to this, because this is not a movie that lacks for acclaim. But some of the dissent, and I haven't read full reviews by people, but there's oh yeah, there is this dissent that sort of suggests that that obliqueness that we're talking about, mm. not really saying what it is, that it's a dodge, mm. and I can't fathom feeling that way. Yeah, but I'm always interested in trying to engage with negative thoughts on a movie that mm-hmm. I really like, and people, I mean. Richard Brody, who's a great critic. I'm not saying this to criticize Richard. I love Richard Brody. Yes, we love Richard. <laughs> I love Richard. And I love and I love how how some some of his other takes on the bigger movies this year that were contrarian, I happen to agree with, like Tar. Yeah. But he was like, you know, so after Sun found it middling, the, the the obliqueness and the opacity of it is kind of like mm-hmm. doing homework. Mm-hmm. I just didn't feel that way. I don't know if, if anyone had moments where it where it hit them like that. I found it so mysterious and generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not high handed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For me too. I mean the only moment that felt a little prescriptive, I would say, is when we cut to adult Sophie waking up from the dream her partner says, happy birthday, Sophie, which I just can't imagine <laughs> saying to someone I'm in bed with. Yeah, sure. And then we hear the natal crying in the background and we continue to hear it uh, later in the film. Mm-hmm. That sense of like, you know, the circle of life or something. For me, I felt like it was maybe like one maraschino cherry too many or something. Like mm-hmm. I didn't need quite that much to think that looking back, had to be imbued with raising a child herself or additional sort of significance. And what's so powerful to me about the film is the way that even though it's, you know, a little boring, and I think that sense of it being boring as having use, as you describe, is so on the nose. At the same time, it seems to me that vacation time is like this perfect heuristic for understanding how time compartmentalizes memory and how it's like we live our experiences in real time, but then at the same time on vacation, we're taking pictures of them. We're trying to capture or pin them down as if we're anticipating reminiscing about them. And it reminded me of that line in Kicking and Screaming um, when he's like, I'm reminiscing this right now, which always <laughs> makes me really laugh. But I hadn't thought about that in years. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it all the time, weirdly. But I mean, I think about that concept, just not that line. <laughs> yeah, just this idea of like the twin simultaneous experiences of one's life as it's happening and then also how you're going to remember it and then scrutinizing that memory for gaps and I did find the movie sort of really pleasingly mysterious for the most part. And even the sort of ending, how things distort and devolve and then feel very, very sobering at the end of the film. All of that still felt pretty pleasantly unclarified in terms of like what actually happens outside of loss. Yeah. Like loss as a category, that's enough for me. I saw this film at New York Film Festival on my actual birthday, which I was sort of surprised that birthdays are such a sort of plot point in the film. And I lost my father in 2020. And that was really sort of like weighing on me as I was watching it and thinking about how you would, how you do remember people after they slip away, whether that's like (laughs) off this mortal coil slip away or just distant or remote in a more kind of mundane sense. You know, when I interviewed her for Sight and Sound, it, so you know, yeah, you guys saw the piece, so it's in there. I didn't yeah. see it come up in too many other interviews, but it's great. When she talks about in the script when they're out diving, and I found the diving scene really fascinating for the prelude where he like can't get the suit on, right? <laughs> which seems to be this weird running thing of weakness or clumsiness or awkwardness, because I mean, there really is, you know. What's the Tai Chi for? And he's got the the bandage on his arm. I mean, he seems mm. like a wreck, even though he's also Paul Mescal. He's very good looking and he's fit. A hundred percent. hundred percent. So you're sort of, you're, you're, you're wondering where that, where that vulnerability comes from. But when she, she mm-hmm. drops the mask and he dives down, you know, in the original script, she had the girl bobbing on the surface while he goes underneath. And that, all, that does mean something already. But to then change it in the edit, to find the moment with her editor, Blair McClendon, where, no, she's not bobbing on the surface. He just doesn't come up. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it's the sort of moment that if you, you, know, you don't notice it, you're not watching the movie properly. But I do think if you do notice it, it's because the movie is teaching you a couple things. Mm-hmm. She said, and I didn't take this from the shot, but she's, Charlotte Wells, very brilliant. She said this. She wanted that shot to maybe feel like it could have almost been cutting to the present because mm. the water is the same. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm -hmm. So that's actually a shot that it fits into the movie's editing scheme as being in one place in time, but like a lot of locations from the movie, you know, could just as easily be now. Mm -hmm. But she also agreed, or we talked about that idea of him not coming up. It's that idea, again, not of dread, not of foreshadowing, but it's just showing you how to watch the movie. Mm -hmm. So where are all these absences and departures and separations leading, Mm -hmm. right? And whether it's he's not going to come up or he's not going to come back through the door and all that stuff at the end, because I agree with you, there's things about the present tense frame, even just the way the actress looks and the way her apartment looks. I mean, I know that some people have found it a little chic or they've found it a little a, a little hipster chicy. <laughs> but I think about the way that all that stuff towards the end, whether it's her dream of him, you know, in the dance club or walking down that door, it's all about distance yeah. and departure. And that even in her memories, when she gets to that part of her memory cycle, she can't see him. Yeah. Even when she's embracing him, she can't see him. Mm-hmm. Right. I find that that stuff is not to me like coy gamesmanship. It really speaks mm-hmm. to this personal agony of like, I didn't see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he was right there and I didn't see him or I saw the wrong part of him or I only saw a, a part of him. And to do that in the absence of a single anguished monologue, you know, is yeah, I know. pretty amazing. Yeah, Definitely. So much of it is happening in this purely visual way. Yeah. And I love the stuff that you're talking about, about finding space away from Frankie's Corio's character. And often in the film, I feel like we get the two characters apart, but held in the same frame so that distance, but also juxtaposition are being sort of invoked at the same time. And sometimes this is happening via editing as well. And like one moment that struck me in this most recent rewatch that I didn't really think about when I first watched the film is that we cut from this great, it really reminded me of In the Mood for Love, that shot where he's in the bathroom kind of working on his cast and they're separated by the hotel room wall. The frame is neatly divided in two, right? And then we cut immediately to this close-up of their hands, their fingers kind of intertwined on the rail of the boat. And it just felt so powerful to me that the editing chooses to set those right next to each other, this image that so clearly suggests a kind of distance and compartmentalization, and then one where you can't tell where his fingers end and hers begin, basically. And to see that be the sort of dominant thinking of the film, but then atomized into all of these things that are happening on the visual level, I thought was just like tremendously moving and really spoke to the collaboration between Wells and these people that I presume she went to film school with. Yeah, the I mean, I, he, he's been getting some recognition from different critics groups, but, you know, the editing by Blair McClendon is, yeah. is amazing. And she's gone out of her way to say so, right? This isn't a case of an editor not getting credit from the, mm-hmm. from the creative team. I mean, I think it is sort of a tight bunch. And I also think that in looking at evaluating performance, I don't mean in terms of awards, but when you talk about Mescal, I think the thing to lead with in that same spirit of collaboration is what a generous performance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Charlotte Wells told me a little bit about the acting style. So in terms of how those scenes were shot, I mean, just factually, he did a lot to help her. Not because she wasn't good. She's great. But this is her first movie. And, yeah. you know, he he's really kind of lifting her up with the way he is on set. But no, it's, a, it's an amazingly collaborative, synchronized, symbiotic kind of lead performance. They do kind of have time apart, but... He is just so constantly like palpably got one eye on her and encouraging her and egging her on, except for the moments where he's just not. And then she seems like truly just at a loss, Mm. you know, when he's not paying attention to her. Because, again, parental kid stuff on screen, it can be death. Absolutely. Mm. It it can be so inauthentic. It can be so inauthentic, so cheesy, so corny, so manipulative. I knew that we were in good hands. I think it's the first time we see them when he's... She's kind of just like splayed all over him. Is it in the bus? Yes. The airport shuttle bus? Yeah. On the way to the hotel? I think Charlotte told me that they filmed that late in the film. Yeah. That they had to get the two of them to a point where they could film something like that. But the way that he's just kind of got her, you're like, he's got her. Mm. Which is why the extent to which the movie is about him letting go against his will or letting go against his best, whatever. It's really hard. Yeah. Because he's got her so tight at the beginning. Yeah. It really does. Absolutely. Yeah, I get sad thinking about all of it. <laughs> I know. I, I don't want to <laughs> twist the knife, Chad. <laughs> no. But I do want to ask you if that 
Does this also resonate with your sense of how parenting may or may not appear like effectively on screen? No, no, absolutely. I mean, that that's why it, I think, is so, yeah, heartbreaking at times and also just deeply resonates on all kinds of levels because, one, I mean, if I'm talking about parenting my kids at 11, then that's already a few years removed. So I can already feel how memory works in that way, where I remember a lot of the things that I remember from those years from, unless I was really specifically paying attention to taking a moment in, which is in the rush of parenting and work and everything else, very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And if you're a reflective person that wants to be a good parent, even in the moment, you're beating yourself up for not taking the moment in more. You know, it's slippery uh, how you remember Mm -hmm. the things you remember. And you realize, unfortunately, at least in this modern era, Mm -hmm. that you remember a lot of the things because they're the things you took pictures of or they're the things that you videoed or, and you've watched those things and those form your memories of what that was. Plus this like felt sense that you had of what that time felt, you know, what, what 2017 felt like or what 2013 felt like. And you know, I'm a pretty obsessive uh, recorder of my kids' lives um, since there. I mean, I uh, the first year of each of their lives, I wrote every day in a journal to the future them with the idea to give it to them on their 18th birthday and then remembered really quickly <laughs> how much I would have been unappreciative of that at 18 because I'd have been like, dude, I'm trying to launch, I'm trying to launch here, dude. Can you, can you not like make me feel massively guilty? Dad. Yeah. So I I thankfully caught that and gave it to him on their 10th birthdays. And, you know, and I put pictures in all the moments I was taught writing about and they just treasure those things. And it's the thing I'm most worried about if our house catches on fire. It's like, oh, those two books are irreplaceable. But yeah, I can't, I, I can't look at those books ever again i mean i I would Mm. i would just sob and ruin the pages with the tears because of how i mean those those moments are also special and vacation moments like adam was saying earlier uh and veronica alluded to too they stand out the most because they're not the mundane i mean i made a million lunches in the first five years for each of them i have a sense memory of a collective making a lunch for the kids memory but i don't remember all those lunches Mm. you do remember uh going to hawaii or Mm going to Disneyland or any of those things. Mm. And and in this case, they I'm not sure if it even says why they went to Turkey or what the point, because they don't seem to do that much there. So it wasn't about a big event trip, but it was th- those trips, as a parent, you take a lot of those too, and they just become about those memories. Like, oh yeah, I remember when we walked to the pool and it was closed. And that's a moment mm-hmm. in your life that you remember for some reason. Mm-hmm. And this film captures a lot of that so well, I think. Just, it captures boredom really well. I don't, I never found it boring, but I thought that it captured boredom really well. Mm-mm. It captured the slowly starting to figure out that there's this outside world that's both exciting and completely confusing to like an 11 or 12 year old as she's around all these older kids. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the little motorcycle guy, I don't even know his name and he's not the motorcycle guy, but the guy she races in the video arcade and the yeah. kisses her later and all that kind her of stuff. Her first kiss. Yeah. yeah. And, and so just like the way that those things, if you do them in not a movie way, which I know was your original question. So finally getting around to it. <laughs> if you do those in not a movie way, it's just really amazing how powerful that is, how powerful the art form is and how great cinema can be because it captures the feeling. I remembered what it felt like to go through the weird awkwardness of there was no swelling music, you know, for your first kiss. It was awkward. It was strange. It was like some random, not random, but Mm -hmm. it just captures. And that's the word I always keep coming back to. It captures so much about so many things. When you mentioned the coming of age stuff, it's interesting how compartmentalized that coming of age stuff is because it's really all Mm -hmm. crammed into the long night where he's not home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of it. Absolutely. Most of it. And there's a lot of threat. I mean, my mom of all people, my, I, I shouldn't say of all people, of course my mom, because she's, <laughs> she's the one who taught me how to watch movies. But oh. <laughs> you know, she finally watched it recently, and she was like, in those scenes, she was very angry at him for leaving her alone, you know, as, mm-hmm. you, as you should be. And I felt that too. You know, that mix of absolutely precise memory, like that first kiss in the empty pool or the empty room, mm-hmm. but then the abstraction of like, is he really walking into the ocean, right? I mean, that mix is really fascinating. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but the movie has something to say, I think, even about cliches and vacation because the Polaroid mm-hmm. yeah. is such a cliche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like fizzy drinks and, you know, smiling and, you know, like a like a selfie. It's the sort of thing where if someone showed it to you as a vacation slide, unless you really loved them, you'd probably find it boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's compositionally unremarkable. It's probably one of a million. But it also sums up absolutely everything about them. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That closeness and the fleetingness of that time and the fact that she seems subconsciously when she asks him, and it's improvised dialogue where she's like, you know, why can't we just stay here? Mm. Yeah. Forever, which is a question that I don't think 
really has anything to do with Turkey or an island or a vacation. Absolutely. I think it's a question that kids have about the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And parents have too. <laughs> parents have too, but I can't think about my my fears with that question because their fears supersede those fears for me because sure. they, mm. they're so scared when they're young, right? Mm. And so I was watching that scene and I was thinking, this is an ingenious bit of filmmaking that you have digital film or digital video showing me a Polaroid coming up in real time. Yeah. It's showing these these frozen faces that are seconds removed from the people having the conversation, but they're as far away in time as like the Big Bang, basically. It's never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Having this improvised discussion, and I thought that this is such intuitive, masterful filmmaking. That's the word, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's masterful filmmaking, which is why when I've read some people say, and again, I mean, the movie does not lack for acclaim, but there's this sense somehow that like she's using mystery and her own unstated, unexplained trauma, like spackle in the joints of this movie. And I'm like, she's just, no, she's figured out a language that's absolutely mm-hmm. effective. I mean, she's doing the same thing that alpha male art film directors do and that more experienced <laughs> yeah. directors do, whether it's a Pitchapong or Claire Denis. Like, I'm not saying she's in that class yet or trying to overstate the case, but there are moments in this movie where it's not like, oh, this is an interesting sensibility. I wonder what she'll make after her, her first feature. I'm like, this is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if, and if that's not maybe every second or every frame of a 90 minute movie, I mean, so what? It's a lot of it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. A ton. A ton. Is just really, 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 really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It could be like two scenes of it, you know? Yeah. That's what I would remember. <laughs> and that's sort of what happened to me. I think the first time I watched it was the under pressure sequence. Sure. Yeah. When all the background arrangement drops out and it's just the lyrics and you really, I mean, it's a song I think we all probably know pretty well. And yet, like, I've never really considered the sort of, seriousness and gravity (laughs) of the lyrics you know the idea of people who live on the edge of the night like it just feels terrifying in that nightclub scene isn't it great that she and Inuritu had the exact same idea to have a David Bowie song play in a strobe light nightclub where the music falls out and you just have the lyrics in the same year? Great idea. And one scene is devastating and the other is literally people dancing to Let's Dance. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. I, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, every good choice has a bad version of that choice lurking just under the surface. It is hard to do a bad Bowie needle drop. I haven't seen Bardo whatever yet. I don't know. Francis Ha has one for me, but... I thought that was a pretty good one, though. <laughs> I know. People like it. But it's borrowed from a great one. Yeah. <laughs> right? So. Yeah. I don't know how much you guys have seen, but like even like the, there's a scene in Sleeping with Other People from 2015 where they oh, yeah. do modern life. I mean, it, but the thing is, and this gets back to some of the, again, we, we're talking a lot about the criticism as if there's a ton, and I know there's not, but the criticism that comes up in the film that I've heard a lot is how on the nose or manipulative it is at times. And I that to me, that is just such a strange, strange criticism as if all movies aren't manipulative. Right. As if that's not the whole point. Sure. And that if you show your hand in some way or specifically people have pointed to the, the scene of him just crying and the mm-hmm. and to me, like I, that was one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. And if I can know that, well, yeah, the filmmaker put it there for her own reason. I don't think she said, well, I'm going to make the audience cry now. Here we go. It fit organically into the story and as much as he has a character arc, that's kind of the climate. I mean, he's like just broken at that point. He's like, by day three of trying to pretend that I'm this happy dad who shows my daughter the dance moves all the time and tries to keep her spirits up and tries to like, you know, stay connected with her while I'm going through whatever I'm going through, which I love, love that she doesn't specify what's really going on. Like we get that he doesn't maybe have money. We get that he's got some depression and anxiety going on. But like him laying on the rug in that store and him like mm-hmm. crying and him, even the part where he's taking his cast off and there's, there's the wall that splits them. Um, th- there's just always this barrier. As a parent, I think, even if you're not going through mental health struggles, you do start to feel, and it's really, really sad, <laughs> the, the natural this is what life is barrier that starts to become like, I knew everything about my kid's life the first 10 years. There was very little I, I didn't know. Mm. And then they start to have their own lives and their own experiences. and there does start to be a natural split there too. So even without his issues, there already is that kind of thing. And it's, is that manipulative to, you know, do a frame with a, with a wall dividing them or have scenes where it shows him from the back crying? No, I, I mean, I don't think so any more than any other movie is, but the idea that you can't show that kind of earnestness or that you can't say like, yeah, this is her memory of, 
however fictionalized, um, what it was like to be around her dad who eventually did pass away for, I, I'm not sure how, a few years later. Like that's, it's powerful. I don't think it's cheating as, as some people have uh, frustratingly suggested. So, I mean, that shot that you're talking about in particular, or the sort of long take of Paul Meskel's back while he's sobbing, yeah. which to me feels so like this continuation of a moment in his performance as Connell in uh. <laughs> Normal People when he, in long take, is crying in the therapist's office. Oh. And that was the moment when I was just like, Paul Meskel has it. Like, he's <laughs> really got it. If anyone's got it, he's got it. That moment to me feels as much about what he's going through mm -hmm. as it is about her kind of groping toward the possibility, which yeah. is completely fantasized, of access to her father or a father's like interiority. You know, the fact that he's facing away, that it's all we see in the shot, but yeah. what it is that we see is sort of the back of something. He's often obscured too. I mean, throughout, yeah. she said that was somewhat the cinematographer's preference. Right. That he loves to shoot backs was her quote. Yeah. <laughs> and again, some of the framing on this stuff too. And, and I don't know, Adam, if she talked about any of the, the process of how she did this, but just watching entire scenes through a TV monitor of the video that she's shooting that you can kind of see her, that's just masterful. And I heard her say that yeah. she doesn't really even know how to do blocking. She just kind of half learned it, but doesn't really, I mean, she, so they were setting all this up like in the moment or I'm not really sure how she did it. From what I've read, she has been tremendously, but not disingenuously uh, deferential to her collaborators. Okay. She's said that she's not a film brat, right? I mean, she likes movies. Yes, I've heard that. But, you know, she's not a hard, 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 hardcore cinephile like maybe her cinematographer and her editor. She's not on film Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope not. All, all, all nice people should stay. Yes. I have a rank, ranked list of directors who I think have decent souls who should not spend time on film Twitter. The, the, the jerky ones, by all means. Yes. You know. But, um, no, and I, I think that when you talked about that scene with the video camera and the reflection in the TV, you know, I mean, that stuff's all very carefully engineered. I mean, something that's that layered and and, mm -hmm. and 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 has so many planes and vertices i mean that's not something that can be found but yeah i think that idea of withholding had to do a lot of shooting people from behind or shooting people from their back and again it's that whole idea of him kind of moving away from her and moving away from her isn't towards us right yeah right and it's interesting too with the little with frankie and corio's performance because she really does not herself as an actress have too many dawning moments. The movie has them for her. Mm -hmm. Like she's present in her own memories, but she doesn't really have any scenes where she seems through her, where her character in real time is getting it. And Frankie Corio has to act concerned, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Which doesn't mean it's a limited performance. It's just really fascinating. There's no mm -hmm. scene in the movie that you would expect that's a variation on like, Dad, are you okay? Or like, you want to talk about something? Or yeah, I'm so glad there wasn't. Yeah. Well, no, I'm glad there wasn't too. And it's not because I like avoid melodrama or think that dialogue wrecks movies, but either it would be too hard to take mm. or it'd be very hard to make believable. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact in a way the filmmaking is giving a performance of that character's interiority and subjectivity. It's all the things that are half seen, overheard, semi-experienced. One of the interesting moments in the movie where you really can tell how she's reacting to her dad and how frustrated she is is the one moment where she's put in front of everybody else when she's on stage doing the R.E.M. song. Yeah. yeah. She can barely kind of make eye contact with him, and this is clearly not going the way that she wants it to, and she powers through it for reasons that don't have a lot to do with enjoyment. That's one of those moments where you can sense something is on her mind that's not great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the movie, whether out of kindness or out of truth to Charlotte Wells's memory of this, it spares her a lot of the moments that another movie, a perfectly decent movie may, maybe, mm -hmm. might force that character through. It spares her them, mm -hmm. right? What makes the movie hurt is that later on this filmmaker has remembered them and she's remembered that her younger self didn't see it when she was actually there. And uh, I asked her at the end of an interview, which was, I'm not like an emotional interview, but it's a fairly serious interview and she's definitely mm. had to learn to talk about this stuff. God, that'd be hard. Right? <laughs> And I sort of asked her if she thought it was fair to say that one feeling one could have at the end of the movie is to be very angry, right? And I sort of said, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be angry at a fictional character. I'm certainly not trying to be angry at your dad, but like I'm a parent and it just makes me angry. And she said, yeah, she said that that's part of it, but that she, she wants the feeling that you see of joy between them in the movie to feel pure mm. and that that anger isn't infecting it because it wasn't there in real time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't angry at him when they were on that vacation. She's not angry. Mm-hmm. It's not like the actress is playing a ton of subtext. No, yeah. Right. And it's really interesting from a point of view of drama to have that. It's like Carl Malden once said the hardest scene he ever had to play was in uh, on the waterfront when he didn't, the character doesn't know a bottle's about to be thrown at his head, but he does. You know, how do you act when you know a bottle's about to be thrown at your head, but your character doesn't? Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of maybe a bit of a tortured analogy, but it's something in what I see about in Frankie Corio's performance, which is not dumb or not oblivious, but she is not inflected with the feelings that the movie has. Yeah. The movie has them about her, but not through her. She has this really great uh, kind of offhand comment in the Q&A she did with Barry Jenkins, who I guess we should say was a producer on this. And, and yeah. He gave extensive notes according to what he said, but she rejected a lot of them, which is awesome. Good. But but she said exactly to what you said there, which was the quote I'll just read here. It says, I tried really hard not to make any moment of greater importance than it would have been to the characters in that moment. Totally. You know, as soon as I read that, it really just was like a skeleton key that clicked in. Like, yeah, that, and you know, it actually is where it derives a lot of its power from because <laughs> all the other stuff is layered on top and stuff we're bringing to it or stuff that we're being, you know, subtly hinted at what might be going on, but she just didn't know in that moment. Like, obviously she didn't know, hey, this trip is going to end up being something I think about when I have my own child and try to figure out what was going on with my dad, <laughs> you know. But that's, that's where a lot of the power is because that's how we live our lives. I mean, we don't, we don't know the moments that we're in. We don't know what we're going to feel about people and what was really going on underneath the hood for anybody. You know, five years later, you can totally rewrite an entire relationship with somebody. The only reason that I didn't have a problem with the scene you guys did with the adult Sophie waking up in the bed it is on the nose, but pretty well kind of researcher documented that when you have your own kids, a lot of people for the very first time, not those of us who are neurotically obsessed with reflecting on everything, <laughs> but that that's the time when a lot of people start thinking about their parents uh, and their own childhoods in ways they had just never done before. So yeah, even then, I just thought that was a, an interesting choice. It was psychologically true. So. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the sort of subtlety and sophistication of After Sun, but I know, Adam, that we want to talk a little bit about another father-daughter film from 2022 that perhaps, <laughs> speaking of like the bad choice under the good choice, does a lot of vulgar things that After Sun does very respectfully. I mean, that's Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Have you guys all seen The Whale? I've seen it. I haven't seen it. I, I have... Read enough to know I probably won't see it for a while. Run, don't walk. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because I saw these films within about 10 days of each other. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And I'm going to say about The Whale, this is an interesting way to lead with what I think is you know, maybe the worst or one of the worst movies I saw all year. It did at the very end make me cry. Mm-hmm. And it's an example of how it's possible to differentiate between the same emotional response in like, you know, respectful and just bludgeoning ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a film that mostly I think it was just the relief of it being over that just released something in me, this kind of just like little choke of gratitude of just like, oh, thank God, which I think on some level maybe had to do with the suffering of the main character played by Brendan Fraser, but yeah. definitely just that the the suffering of watching it was over and I I don't know what it was too but I mean I think I was just like angry and so those things all just kind of coalesced in this sort of like very annoyed emotional response to it because I mean it's not just a question of being manipulative it's a question of sort of just being bludgeoning yeah and one of the things about Mother, which is not a movie that I love, and I don't know how the podcast feels about Mother. I liked it, but I, don't, I might be the only one. Well, no, I will say this. I will say this for Mother, which is that as over the top and obnoxious and muscle flexing and everything as it was, I thought it was slightly out of character for Aronofsky that it wasn't doing it towards like tear jerking emotional ends. It's kind of like an allegory, mm. a dumb one, a dumb one. Yeah. <laughs> but an allegory, and by the time it turns into like WWF SmackDown action movie crazy magic realism by the end, I kind of felt like emotion was off the table. Mm-hmm. But this is a filmmaker who has a movie he makes over and over again. Mm-hmm. He made it with Black Swan. He made it with The Wrestler. He made it with Requiem for a Dream. The well, He made it with Pi. <laughs> made it with Pi. He's making it again with The Whale. Pi should have let us know where he was going to go. <laughs> and I just want to know when he can stop making it mm-hmm. or or when eventually he'll stop being taken seriously for making this over and over again while thinking this was actually probably in that mode the worst of them that is why it's so funny to me that people i have read a little bit 
saying things about Charlotte Wells, like, well, maybe now that you have this out of your system, this kind of autobiographical <sighs> moment, right. you know, as as meticulously and cinematically realized as it is. And yet Aronofsky, it's just like yet another exploitative redemption film that ends in a whiteout. <laughs> just like unbelievable. And I too cried at the end of it. I think because, you know, I was really distracted by the idea of Brendan Fraser's performance and his, this this is an opportunity for him in terms of mm. acting. And, you know, I think it's commendable. I've heard nothing bad about that. It was a good performance. I hope he feels great about it. <laughs> but like, it's just, oh, I felt agitated and upset and ugh, like, overburdened and kind of filthy when I was watching it. Oh, it's like a sitcom from hell. I mean, the whole movie is just him sitting on the couch and then like everybody else is Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Knock, knock. His strange daughter played by Sadie Sink. Knock, knock. You know, she's Kramer and, and poor Hong Chow who like never has false oh. notes in her acting. She's a great actress and yeah. she's got nothing to do here as his like, you know, help meet. And you know, I mean, everyone, the, the young, you know, religious fundamentalists, they're all just kind of there to like bounce a movie off of Brendan Frazier sitting there in his makeup you know unable to move <laughs> basically just being a human metaphor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or kind of you know you know meta five <laughs> the experience of watching it is just so claustrophobic and maddening and hateful but yeah. I saw it in a theater at TIFF which is sold out and my friends were like rushing like the editor of film comment was like trying to get me to savor a seat and other friends are trying to get in because of this idea of award show and prestige and whatever else and I felt wow such an incredible like disjunction between artistic quality and like necessity of coverage. Yeah. You know, where I'm like, oh God, like I guess I'm obliged to have an opinion on this. Didn't it get a standing ovation? Yeah. Wasn't that the one that they showed all over the internet where everyone just clapped and Brendan Fraser was there? Was that the screening? You're right? Yeah. And I think it got a standing ovation in, in Venice and then yeah. it, it didn't play the New York Film Festival. They didn't take it. De Niro said no. <laughs> You know, I found like the, the not just the manipulativeness of it, but this confusion of sort of like cruelty for empathy is very singular to this filmmaker. I can't figure out how he gets it wrong like this over and over and over again, demonstrably. And while I don't like Black Swan, at least that's a little campy. Yes. You know? Yes. This does not have that. Yes, I do like Black Swan, and I think it's just accidentally much better yeah. because it's so campy, because of Barbara Hershey, because, you know, <laughs> the, like, push-ins, like, it's just silly, and the mise-en-scene is doing a lot more for me there than it is in this film where it's like, I get it, Moby Dick, <laughs> the whale, we're in a hold, people keep passing by the door or the window. Yeah. It really is referencing Moby Dick? N nothing isn't, basically. Nothing it's just oh, like, wow. it's raining the whole time. We get it. As someone who has not seen it, I had no idea that it was that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And when it's not referencing Moby Dick, it's doing the even more abject thing, which is you've got, like, Trump on television. Right. Oh, my. Oh, my. You know? Yeah. You've got yeah. you've got Trump on TV, and it's the run-up to the 2016 election. Like, those are just things where it's like if you have a license, it should be revoked. Like, yes. the filmmaking license is yeah. just revoked because yes. it's so inorganic. To the material, it's 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 just such an attempt to you know impart or impaste a kind of significance. I mean, <laughs> but 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 I guess the reason I wanted to at least you know mention it in sardonic passing is that at the core of it, it's about estrangement between a father and a daughter, and in this case, a father who pulled himself away. Mm -hmm. And it's like this nightmare coda to after son, where it's like actually, if you could reconnect with your dad, you're reconnecting with him in this like hideously pushy fake sitcom exactly with a fake sitcom ending you know which is like by the way all these years you know the essay that i've been clinging to is the one you wrote when you were a preteen girl and like you know oh, can daddy please just hug you and it's like words almost fail me <laughs> i'm actually I, i'm searching for people who who have a kind of good defense for the movie and have there are not. people that love it i mean I've, i know it's really hard to imagine <laughs> Because it is so gratuitous. Mm. The movie is, like Adam's saying, like cruel to the characters within it in a way that to me just totally renders impossible mm. a sort of 
positive estimation of what has happened here. So I don't know. I, I do think it makes for a perfect, as you say, nightmare coda to After Sun because of everything they have in common and everything they have apart. I think so. I was I was wondering if someone would come on the pod and be like, actually, it's great, but <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem like that happened, so we're spared. Well, we have another special... No. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Arnowski? We have a fourth caller. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so seems 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 like we've been spared. <laughs> um, last call. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Typically, we end every episode asking our guests to share um, a last thing, a most recent thing that they've watched, and then a quick staff recommendation for us. So, Adam, I'd love to hear something that you watched recently and a staff reco for our listeners. Well, the only thing that I watch is Bluey, <laughs> the Australian kids show, seven minute episodes. Oh, my God. <laughs> about a family of dogs. It's the after son of animated dog cartoons. It's Beautiful. It's sublime and emotional and very well observed about parenting, although there is no uh, suicidal depression in Bluey. I mean, I watch Bluey like all, <laughs> all, <laughs> all the time. It's, it's kind Ethan of, wrote like a long, long essay on it not too long ago. Yeah. And it's a really good show. And sorry, were you asking me also for a movie recommendation or you guys have a movie yeah. recommendation? No, no, that's No, you. no, for yeah. you, from you, please. Uh, well, you know, I don't know if you're going to end up covering it on the pod, and it seems to be very much a movie of the moment, and one that I actually don't love, but I think is endlessly interesting to discuss is uh, Kyle Edward Ball's Skinnamarink. Mm. Oh, yeah. A staple of future horror film and indie film and found footage film syllabi. I mean, I, I teach on the business of film at U of T, so I kind of threw these numbers at my students in week one, you know. $15,000 budget produced in Edmonton. I think it's made like $800,000 already. Amazing. I'm sure it won't swell to paranormal activity Blair Witch dimensions, but just <laughs> when it seems like no one's going to do one of these again. Yeah. Like one that really does, you know, overperform and make its creator instantly bankable. They keep coming along. There's something about horror and hype that is conducive to these disproportionate return on investment successes. No other genre has them mm. except for porn and Christian faith-based dramas. If you look at the list of those <laughs> profitable movies of all time, I think like the big parade is in there by King Vidor and everything else is either horror, porn or faith-based filmmaking. The Holy Trinity. Yeah. The Holy Trinity. Like the Kirk Cameron stuff. Yeah. Well, this movie facing the giants. <laughs> Which uh, you know is subject for future podcast research. I think is, is that porn or Christian faith? No, it's about it's about a youth football team. Oh okay. like, wow! Oh sports, who, our upcoming issue. Sports, yeah. But a youth football team with like Jesus in the locker room or something. Oh oh, it was then that I carried you. It was then, yeah. You always have to pass it, yeah. To Jesus, yeah. When there was one, when there was one set of cleats next to the fourth down marker, it was then that I ran for first down. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, no horror movies; they metastasize hype, and it's like actually directly translatable into money. Whereas you look at these prestige movies that cost a lot more at the end of the year, and you have the producers of Tar being like, "Why can't we have a trailer like Skinnamarink?" You know, I mean, <laughs> I know, I know Tar is a more expensive movie and it's made more money, but it's... I'm so glad we got a Tar mentioned on here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. We have like a six episode streak. So. Of people mentioning Tar? Oh, of us mentioning Tar all the time. We were obsessed with I, it for a while. It's easy to continue the streak. It's a yeah. self-generated well, streak. And also you mentioned melodrama, Adam. That was another word we always use in every every episode. So thank you. Well, no, for sure. Hopefully now you can add Skinnamarink. Skinnamarink <laughs> is way more fun to say. Add it to the bingo board. Yeah. And I really quick did just want to say to Adam, uh, reading your, your interview with Charlotte Wells, I never knew what the phrase losing my religion meant. And now it makes so much more sense in both in the song and just being at the end of your rope. Like I had no idea that that's like a phrase. So yeah, thank you for, at, thank you for putting that in there. <laughs> at, at, at the end of your rope and kind of like, you know, having feelings for somebody else. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I love R.E.M. I mean, because Michael Stipe never like did love songs. The fact that all the songs on out of time were basically romantic love songs was kind of lost mm. on everybody. So when lose my religion came out, people were like, Oh my God, they're singing about God. And he's like, no. It's yeah. About, that's like, what I thought as a kid too. Yeah. He's, it's about like wanting basically to like, pick somebody up or, or talk to somebody, which is far less mystical. And also just slides right into that scene in such a powerful way when you realize that's what it means. So I think so too. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. And I think, oh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's a dream. This has been wonderful. Uh, We've wanted to, uh, wanted to connect for a while. So thank you so much. I had a blast. Thank you very much. Aww. 
And Adam, where can our listeners find you online? Wherever people are hungry, you can find me. Wherever, what's, the, what's, the, what's the line from the Grapes of Wrath? Wherever people are watching Bluey. You can find me at Bar Plus Karaoke on February 3rd, probably doing R.E.M. You know what? I won't say what it is, but I should, if all goes well, have a pretty cool profile in The New Yorker in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, awesome. Directorial one, so hopefully that'll pan out. And... Got your book. It's great. Oh, well, I know. Yeah, but you guys, you guys have a have a bright wall, dark room Anderson book coming out. Ah, uh, it's not, it's not through us. It's it's uh, Ethan's doing it separately. Well, I know, but that's your team. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I've read through it, and I I really like it. I'm I'm like sort of like oh cool. We're like oh man, you know, he gets to come out second. He, all these good <laughs> points. Why wasn't I making those? <laughs> I should have made those. But anyway, I'm, I'm findable in the usual precincts. And thank you guys so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Take care, Adam. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, to read this month's issue, uh, please visit us, as always, at brightwalldarkroom.com. Uh, this month's issue is the best of 2022, uh, one of our biggest size-wise issues of the year, where we try to cover just about all your favorite films. So uh, please do peruse it and let us know what you think. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR and also the little sibling at the BWDR podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates on every issue and a weekly email that all it does is send out links to all the essays we published that week and doesn't bother you with anything else. We would love if you would subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, rate the podcast highly. Please review the podcast and visit our Patreon page if you want to at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. Bye. Wow. Tripart. Yeah. After Chad. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>